It's the 20th of July, 2018. This is the Room Now Week in Review. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week in the news, the misadventures of methotrexate dosing, where do elderly cells go to die, and what's the cost of non-medical switching, or even worse, non-adherence. But before we get into the news, I want to announce that there's going to be a great new regional meeting near you, a rheumatology review run by Arthros. Um, these are regional re review meetings that are going to be held in Chicago, Washington, Nashville, and Boston coming up. You can go to the Arthros website, arthros.org, and see these. On July the 18th is the Great Lakes meeting, going to be held in Chicago. Uh, the next one's going to be, um, I have the dates here, Capital City in Washington, D.C. on August the 11th. And then the following one after that is Music City in Nashville on August the 18th. So if you're in those regions and within drive time, it's a free meeting. The fabulous faculty and program is unbeatable. I think you should look at it and see whether or not you want to attend. This week in the news, we have in interesting information about the prevalence of lupus. This is a Canadian study that looked at the uh, incidence and prevalence rates of lupus over a 16-year period, beginning in 2000 and ending in 2015. Using administrative claims data, the authors show that lupus is six times more common in women than in men. Uh, maybe a number a little bit lower than what you might have quoted in the past, but this is good data from Canada. And they showed that the incidence of, of lupus in the uh, population was 4.3 cases per 100,000 population. More interestingly, they looked at the prevalence of lupus over time, and they showed that it rose significantly from 2000, where the incidence, where the prevalence was 48 cases per 100,000 in 2000, to 90 cases per 100,000 in 2015. What in the world's going on with the prevalence of lupus? It's hard to say. It's, could it be better diagnosis or more wide use of, uh, of the diagnostic testing? I don't think so. I think there may be something here that um, may speak to lupus becoming more prevalent, not just uh, better diagnostic methods identifying patients. But let's see if that gets reproduced elsewhere. A very interesting study, uh, it's a sort of modeling study. It's not really based on actual real data, but it, nonetheless, I think it was very telltale, looked at what would be the cost of non-medical switching, meaning what happens when we get into biosimilars and we change from originators to biosimilars in an effort to uh, save costs, uh, and that may be forced upon the patient or upon the, the, the prescriber. Looking in rheumatology, gastroenterology, and dermatology, what they estimated, looking at a, a million insured lives and making estimates based on uh, a physician survey that gave them some non-medical switch rates, physician time, health resource utilization, et cetera, they estimated that the cost of a non-medical switch was about $200 uh, per patient. Specifically, amongst their million patients in the 3,600 who had non-medical switching, it was going to cost that system over $770,000. And that's with a fairly low rate of non-medical switch, switching of 16%. If that non-medical switch rate were to go up to 25 to 50%, these expenditures are going to be as high as 1.2 to 2.4 million just to account for the cost of switching from for instance, an originator biologic to the biosimilar. 
An interesting uh, study also looked at lupus, uh, this time looking at lupus hospitalizations and predictors of hospitalizations, hospitalizations, specifically 142 lupus patients with 173 uh, hospitalizations for infection. The infection rate was really quite high, uh, the way they calculated, 50%, uh, and most of those infections were pulmonary infections, lower respiratory infections. The risk factors for hospitalization for infection with lupus included either a very high white count or a very low white count, high CRP, low C C4 levels, not C3, and length of hospitalization, suggesting that disease activity made you at risk, but also being in the hospital longer made you at risk, nosocomial infections, etc., uh, and and maybe being uh, having too high an infection, meaning being a marker of lupus uh, infection. So uh, again, this is sort of, uh, I think, reinforces what we know, but uh, I, I don't think I knew that the length of hospitalization was a risk factor uh, in getting serious infections uh, for lupus patients who are in the hospital. An interesting study looks at systemic sclerosis patients, 132 specifically, looking at the incidence of musculoskeletal manifestations and shows a high number, not quite 50%, but above 20%, who actually had arthralgias, synovitis, contractures, and maybe even x-ray erosions. They found that rheumatoid factor positivity was seen in 15% of those with limited disease, 9% of patients with diffuse systemic sclerosis, and a higher percentage, 20%, who had overlap features of scleroderma. Turns out that if someone had double positivity for CCP and rheumatoid factor, they were not only going to have more arthralgia, they were also going to have more erosions. I think this is important because I've seen lots of patients in my career wherein arthritis, um, RA-like arthritis and, and severe arthritis was a key early feature, if not the dominant feature, throughout the course of systemic sclerosis. Adherence to biologics is a big issue. Adherence, we've talked about adherence in the past to DMARTs and other therapies. It's a big issue across the board in primary care. Patients issued an antibiotic, less than 50% of patients will fill the prescription for that antibiotic. Patients tend to be a little bit more adherent in specialty care, but the numbers are staggering and eye-opening. This is a very interesting study that looked at claims data and specifically looked at over 10,000 patients who were starting their first biologic. So these were first biologic DMARDs and biologic naive patients, and they showed that the one-year adherence, non-adherence rate I'm sorry, the one-year adherence rate was only 46%. By the second year, the adherence rate was only 34%. Again, this is based on claims data and patients filling the prescription. Those are abysmally low, 50% dropping out uh, within the first year, almost 65% dropping out by the end of year two. Low, the rates were lowest with golimumab and highest for infliximab. Not surprising, infusions are going to actually probably urge patients to stay on a little bit longer. But even in patients who were effectively treated, what they used here was a formula that Jeff Curtis and colleagues developed where you could sort of guesstimate effective therapy based on a number of different parameters. And using that parameter, there was 30% of patients who were effectively treated with their biologic. Yet, even with the biologic, they had a 59% adherence rate um, and suggesting that even in the, in, in the face of disease uh, control, Patients were not being adherent, a high percentage were not being adherent. This is abysmal data. What we need to do to improve this remains to be seen, but this is a gigantic challenge in healthcare, if not rheumatology. 
A population-based study in Latin American countries, eight of them specifically, looked at the, the incidence, the frequency of musculoskeletal and rheumatic disorders. So looking at the indigenous people in these Latin American countries, the overall rate of musculoskeletal complaints and disorders was 35%, a high, high number. I'm not sure what you quote when you talk about the frequency of musculoskeletal complaints. It's been as low as 20%, sometimes higher. This is 35%. What was that broken down to be? 35, uh, of the 35%, 13% were for back pain, 10% for osteoarthritis, 6% for regional pain, only 1.3% for rheumatoid arthritis goes along with our estimated prevalence of, of rheumatoid arthritis generally in our population, but only 0.1% with spondyloarthritis. So good numbers to quote when trying to get a handle on the frequency of musculoskeletal complaints in a large population. Are you aware of the, the, the study of senolytics? That's S-E-N-O-lytics. It really is looking at the study of of how you can affect senescence as it relates to uh, ultimate outcomes in health. That if you can uh, cure senescence, meaning prevent aging, that patients may in fact do better. We do know that, that senescent cells will develop, that senescent cells actually can be taken and transplanted into young mice and it will impair not only their function, physical function, but it will also impair their mortality, that there are higher mortality rates when patients have, or animals, including humans, actually have lots and lots of senescent cells. So this specific study that was published in Nature is a very interesting one because it looked at young mice and old mice. It gave them senescent cells, showed bad things, whether you're young or old. And then it used a therapy, a cocktail, a, sen a senolytic cocktail that included a dacitinib, a JAK inhibitor, and quercetin, an antioxidant, uh, and that these have been shown in other studies to actually reduce the number of, of circulating senescent cells. By giving this cocktail, what they did was they lowered the number of senescent cells, and what they then showed was that you had improved physical function and improved survival, like 35 to 65% improved survival and, or physical function and survival respectively. So impressive numbers and an impressive way to you know, reverse aging and to get to that sort of cocoon therapy. Look up the movie Cocoon to figure out what happened there. An Australian safety study analyzed methotrexate uh, overdosing and problems with methotrexate misdosing. Specifically, they found, identified from their database, 28 cases where methotrexate was misdosed and what the consequences of that were. Turns out the vast majority of these were cases wherein methotrexate, usually given once a week, was now given daily, erroneously daily, uh, and the net result of that were high rates of adverse events, including pancytopenia, thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, stomatitis, mucosal ulcerations, and lots and lots of GI effects. We certainly know this happens in practice in patients who are on a stable dose, but they reduce their renal function, they get a surge of methotrexate levels that can become toxic. But it also happens in these scenarios where there's an error in dosing and patients who should be taking it once a week on Saturday are now taking the same dose every day, or they're spreading out their doses all, all throughout the week, which is also quite uh, dangerous. Um, the, those who are at risk were non-English speaking individuals. Those who are confusing the daily dosing of folate with the weekly dosing of methotrexate. And those where, wherein mistakes were identified either by physician instruction or the pharmacist instruction. Interesting tweets about this online. Uh, Janet uh, Pope actually had the, one of the best one. This is why she writes the prescription for methotrexate to specifically state 
methotrexate, six pills every Friday. You give it only on the day that you want it used as opposed to saying once a week. That could be misinterpreted by either the patient or the pharmacist. Uh, again, another lesson learned about methotrexate. Speaking of methotrexate, what happens in those who don't respond? Uh, a, a good study looked at predictors of methotrexate um, non-response. This is specifically the rheumatoid arthritis medication study, a UK study that looked at a, over 1,000, 1,050 early RA patients and those who had undifferentiated arthritis who went on to receive uh, um, either subcutaneous or oral methotrexate. They showed that non-response was seen in 43% of individuals, pretty high number, and that this was correlated with A, seronegativity, B, high hack scores and higher disease activity measures and overall um, uh, associated with higher anxiety scores. Not surprising with seronegativity and disease activity associations, but anxiety being something that would um, curtail and limit responses is something new and something to be take note of. Our last report comes with the, uh, about the unsafe practices with Ambien and its use in the United States. In 2015, 3.8 million Americans received a prescription for Ambien, um, and many of these did not follow guidelines recently set out by the FDA, which include one limiting to short-term use because of a loss of efficacy, two, um, using lower doses for those over the age of 65, and using lower doses for women um, because they have uh, uh, higher blood levels. And then there are increased risks when combining Ambien with other CNS depressant drugs. Again, a study of, of the Medicare Expenditure Survey in 2015 revealed that women were more twi twice as likely as men to be um, misdosed with regard to Ambien and to receive Ambien, and that 41% um, of patients on Ambien were also taking other CNS depressants, that two-thirds of patients were using higher doses instead of the lower doses, and that two-thirds of patients were over the age of 65. Sadly, um, there was a high number of, of individuals who were actually not following these recommendations and were not uh, three-quarters we're not following these, these two or more of the above recommendations regarding uh, uh, ambient use. So something to consider when you're prescribing this drug in those, especially of fibromyalgia, et cetera. That's it for this week at roomnow.com. Go to the website to get these citations and read more about these interesting articles. Tune in next week for the podcast and the video cast of the Room Now Week in Review. Um, tell your friends to sign up. Talk to you next week.